All right, let's do some work in God's Word. You can open up a Bible, your Bibles, to John 4. We want to continue our study in the Gospel of John, talking tonight about sovereignty and Sabbath. And so we're not going to get too far out in the weeds on the topic of Sabbath. We are going to touch on it. And I think a lot of times the, the um, conversation is uh, reduced down to things that really aren't as key. Um, and then we sort of miss the forest for the trees. But we'll, we're going to address that a little bit too. Um, but John 4.43 is where we will be. And... We're going to end up in John 5:18. So John chapter 4, verse 43, these are the words of God. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water Wine, And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of his death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying, to, saying that his son was living. So he inquired to them the, uh, the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in, G when, in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one, no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we gather tonight as your people to first and foremost honor and exalt you. We remember your covenant tonight that you are the transcendent authority. And in Christ, we are restored to a right relationship with this transcendence. We come now to hear the ethics of your law word, and we ask that the Spirit would bless us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now, because we are uh, presuppositionalists of the Vantillian persuasion, it is important to keep in mind at all time and in every turn that there is no neutrality. We say that often. And on top of that, since we are theonomic in our approach to all things, because we believe that God's ethics matter more than anything, those things that are not neutral are thus, obviously, either in line with God's law or they go against God's law. That's how we, how we view those sorts of things. In other words, you, you can choose anything you want that's out there in the world in God's good creation, and that thing is what we would call an inescapable concept. In other words, it's unavoidable. So it's not whether, it's which. It's, for our passage tonight, it's not whether there's going to be sovereignty and not whether there's going to be Sabbath. It's which sovereignty and Sabbath will we partake of. That's what we need to be thinking about ahead of time. Now, just to give you some examples, this can be said about pretty much anything you want to talk about. Um, it's not, you, you've ever heard people say this, they straw man you, well, you just want a theocracy. Well, theocracy, theos, kratos, two Greek words that simply means God's rule, uh, we would say, well, it's not whether we're going to have a theocracy, it's which God are we going to have, right? Which theocracy do we want? Do we want God to be king or do we want man to be king and thus rule over us in a, in a form of tyranny? It's not whether laws are going to be ethical or not. You know, you can't legislate morality, that whole conversation. It's not whether they're going to be ethical or not, but which laws will be ethical, and which laws will then be unethical? And so then we ask the question, and by what standards? So it's, it's not whether sovereignty will be acknowledged in society, but which sovereignty are we going to recognize? It's not whether there's going to be a Sabbath, but which type of Sabbath will we partake of? So this is what I mean when we talk about being presuppositional. It's also part of what it means to apply God's law, to be theonomists. Most people have this caricature that to be a theonomist means you're just out to grab stones and start executing people. That's, that's not even where we start. To, to be a theonomist, to apply God's law, means that we are doing the careful work of understanding the presuppositional and thus ethical nature of things so that we can think right, so we can think straight, so, so we don't have to do what I witnessed yesterday and what Matt witnessed yesterday, and everybody's just sort of on the Trump train. He can do no wrong. At one point, someone even said, we will never betray Trump. And, 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 and there are times where we were like, yeah, all right, I, can, I agree with that. Yeah, and then there are times where we're like, ah, <laughs> I don't agree with that at all, especially when you talk about giant walls in Mexico. But that's a different topic, which incidentally, we've already addressed that. Um, 
So that's the type of thinking we need to develop. We need to be mature in our walk. We need to be mature Christians, discerning between good and evil. And the way that that happens is by understanding presuppositions about things, understanding what God's law says about things, and then we go from there. Now, the, the passages before us this evening, we have two, two miraculous healings. We have the miraculous healing of the nobleman's son, and we have the miraculous healing of the man who was ill for 38 years. But there are different contexts associated with it. One's in Galilee, one's in Jerusalem. We've already seen this, right? The wedding at Cana, then the temple rebuke. And, but now we have the same type of issue. We have different responses. How do, how do people respond to these sorts of things? So let's just start with the first passage, and I'll trust that you remembered what we read. After, um, after leaving Samaria, Jesus went further north into Galilee, and Jesus testifies that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So most assuredly, that's a comment that's referring to his time in Judea with the religious leaders who, remember, he came to his own and his own did not, his own rejected him. His own did not receive him. So when he gets to Galilee, they receive him because they saw him do his work in the temple on the Passover. They watched this whole thing go down and they're impressed with this miracle worker so they, they welcome Jesus. Yes, get out of Judea, get out of Samaria, come to Galilee. We'll, we'll welcome you, no doubt. So going to, to Cana, uh, that's the same place again where the wedding miracle took place. We run into the nobleman. There's this royal official whose son is sick back in Capernaum. Now, this would have most likely been uh, higher up in the ranks of Herod's army. He had heard that Jesus um, went to Galilee. So the, he was there imploring him, the text says, begging him, persistently going after Jesus. My son is ill. You need to come and heal him because he's, the text says, at his point of death, verse 47. Now look at verse 48 because I want you to see something. Say what you will about the King James Version. Um, I have a couple nice copies that I use from time to time. But the King James helps us because the word you there in verse 48, if you see it, the word you is actually plural. That's where you get um, ye and thee in King James. That's the difference. Jesus is saying to the crowd who was present, unless you all, this isn't Jesus talking to the one nobleman. He's talking to everyone. Unless you all believe, or rather, unless you all see these signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. You, you have come to this point in your walk where you just want to see a miracle. You just want to see this magical stuff in their mind happen. You don't actually believe. Now, Jesus uses the situation to teach them something profound, which we'll, we'll come back to. So here's the nobleman. He's persistent. He, he needs help. He's, he's, he's in a tough spot. He wants Jesus to come now before his child dies. And Jesus responds to the persistence, not, hey, I'll go and come with you in a little while. He doesn't respond that way. He says, go, your son lives, verse 50. Go, your son lives. Now, we're told that the man believed that the word Jesus spoke to him, and then he left to go home. The man's servants met him, probably coming to find him because of the fact that his son was now okay. Something changed for them. Hi. <laughs> so they come to, to find their ruler, 
the, the son is uh, he's good. He's, he's not dying anymore. We, we're excited about this. We need to come and, and tell you. Of course, he asks when that happened. They told him, well, it was, it was the seventh hour. And the nobleman knew right away that was the time when Jesus had said, your son lives. And then the text says the nobleman believed he and his whole household. And John tells us that this, tells us that this is the second sign that Jesus performed when he calls, when he um, came out of Judea and into Galilee. So remember, in, in John, there are seven signs, and those seven signs point to a new creation week. Um, Jesus is up to something different, and that's just their pointers, their signs. Now, let's talk about this incident. <laughs> at the core of John's gospel is the issue of faith. Don't forget, at the very end of the gospel, he wrote these things so that you would believe, so that all of us would believe on Jesus. And there are two striking aspects of faith that collide here in this story. Faith because we've seen something, and faith because we trust the veracity of Jesus' words. Those are two different things. Faith because we've seen something, they've seen this miracle happen, they've seen some of these things, they've heard a little bit about Jesus. That's a particular faith. And then we have faith exhibited by the nobleman, who believes in the veracity of Jesus' words. Now remember what Jesus said to Thomas in John 20. Later on he says, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Remember Thomas wanted to see Jesus' hands. He touched the hands of, of Jesus. That's an interesting study of resurrection life. Jesus' post-resurrection body still had a hole. Well, maybe here, probably mostly here. But, but Thomas couldn't quite wrap his mind around it. He had to see it. So there's blessing in one sense, but then there's even more blessing in another sense. See, Jesus chides the Galileans because they like the miracles more than they like the miracle worker. Now, the nobleman is quite exemplary in this story. The man trusted the word of Jesus. He didn't need him to march all the way to Capernaum in order to witness a miracle. Jesus, come to Capernaum and do a miracle, and then maybe I'll believe you. That, that's not the type of faith we're talking about. And all that basically means that he trusted Jesus' word. He trusted Jesus as the sovereign one, which means that Christ's word is as powerful and legitimate and authoritative as his very presence. Think about that. Christ's word is as powerful and legitimate and authoritative as his very presence. The, the very fact that we have the word of God sitting in your lap, that we can read it and we can obey it and we can live our lives and shape our lives by it, is as good as if Jesus were standing here and we didn't have the word. And remember that um, Jesus says that it's actually a good thing that he goes because he's going to send the Spirit. And you'd think that's backwards. Why would, why would, we, why would you leave? It's Jesus. Why do he says, no, it's good. It's good that I go. I'm sending you the helper. Or the advocate is probably my personal favorite translation. But keep in mind who, who we're talking about. The nobleman, he was an important figure, but he was also an impotent figure. He was important, but he was also impotent. He, here's a picture of a man. He has power. And, and really, he is the picture of men who have power, who are ultimately shown to be powerless. 
This is one thing the state cannot control, but tries to control nonetheless, especially when we think about the CDC, when we think about vaccines, when we think about um, the, 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 the health scare, the, the, the sort of this propaganda that gets put out there by men in power, the, the abortion on demand. When we think about this and we think about the state, what is the state, what, they, what do they can't do? They can't give life. They can't do it. They can only take life. The, the state has the power to take life, but they don't have the power to give life. And the nobleman demonstrates this absolutely. If you remember, the first miracle in Cana at the, at the wedding pointed to Christ's bringing of a new world order. When, when Jesus transformed the Jewish purification water into wine, and really good wine, by the way, really, really awesome wine, when he did that, it was a sign of his life-giving renovation of the old order, the old Jewish order. Now, the second miracle here in Cana points to just how life-giving this new creation, this new covenant is meant to be, this renovation of the world. What is it supposed to be? Well, death is turned into life. A young son on the brink of death, laying there ill, his dad is panicked, chases down, finds Jesus, and says, you need to heal him. Why did he go to Jesus? He went to Jesus not because he thought him to be a miracle worker. He went to Jesus because he believed him. He trusted him. He believed in his sovereignty. He believed in his word. And ironically, this is a Gentile, no less. Gasp. Just as Elijah had resurrected the widow's son, so Jesus does the same thing. Both Elijah and Jesus say the same thing. Your son lives. Just as Elijah was in the, in the prophet who was taunted and besmeared with aggression constantly, so Jesus Christ, the new Elijah, is going to face the very same thing. And why? Why is that? Let me tell you this basic principle. As we navigate the, the abortion infanticide, not that we're about to have, but we have currently and have had for a while. That's another topic. But life is not and cannot be treasured when men hate and reject God. You remember the proverb, those who hate me love death? Life cannot, is not and cannot be treasured when men hate and reject God. To reject God is to reject his law. To reject his law is to choose one's own destruction. Beauty and value and dignity, the, the beauty of childbirth, the, the beauty of this sign of life, all of that is thrown to the side in a culture that rejects Jesus Christ. Now this episode between a Gentile ruler and a young Jewish prophet is absolutely remarkable. The ruler was employed by Rome. He worked for Rome. And Rome, interestingly enough, believed itself to possess eternal life. If you recall, um, Rome is known as the eternal city. The eternal city. Rome was the author and perfecter of life, according to itself. Rome believed itself to be life-giving. Rome would expand its territory with the sword, and they believed that they were giving life. They were the author and perfecter of life. They were providing for the known world, taking on the yoke, the true Son of God, in their mind, the Savior of the world, the Son of God. They took on Him, the Caesar. And here are Christians who are saying there's another Son of God. There's a different king. There's a different ruler. His name is is Jesus. 
But the Jewish leaders, they too believed themselves to be in control of these types of things. They were the guardians of life. They were the ones, when you were ill, where did you go? You didn't go to the 24-hour place down the street. You, you suffered through it. They had medical doctors. I mean, Luke was a doctor. They had those types of people. But ultimately, you had to go to the priest. You had to go to the temple. You had, to, you had to have cleansing. You had to go through these rituals. You had to have healing. But So the Jews, too, they believed themselves to be the guardians of that. But however, Jesus makes it clear that we are not and we will never be in control of life and death. We will not be and will never be in control of life and death. Only he is sovereign in this arena. Only Christ the servant can resurrect life because only Christ the God-man is the one who gives life. He is both creator and sustainer. The miracles in Cana prove two things. One, to those who are humbled, to those who exhibit true humble faith, they receive the life-giving, regenerating power of God. Two, to those who are proud, to those who are arrogant, the miracles demonstrate judgment against them because of their self-deluded version of power. In other words, a demand for a visible sign makes man sovereign over God. Uh, maybe some of you watched that interaction with the student at George Mason, but he, at one point he wanted a sign. You know, I, if, you know I, if, if God would just show me something, and I'm like, I'm right here telling you, this is your sign. But alas, the man needs a new heart. See, listen, renovation and reformation cannot happen apart from God's power, God's gospel, and God's law. It just won't happen. If we don't have those things, it'll never happen. We simply cannot circumvent Christ and expect to get the blessing that Christ gives. That's the contrast here. People who just want a sign, who just want a miracle, who don't really want to have a real and raw faith and loyal trust in Christ Jesus because of who he is, there's that, and then there's true faith, a humble faith. Now the next story. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. We're in chapter 5. He goes to Jerusalem for a feast. We don't know which feast he's talking about. It's very frustrating that John wouldn't tell us because he's told us every other one. But now he just says there was a feast. Now, um, it could be Purim. Uh, some scholars think it's the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles or Succoth. You've heard of those words. They're all the same. Uh, we don't know. If it is Purim, the healing of the poor man points to what the feast stood for, so it, it could be. If it's Passover, now we have a problem because there's now then there's four Passovers he talks about, and that means Jesus' ministry was four years, but that causes other problems, so it's probably not Passover. But there's a feast. Jesus is there. He's passing by the pool of Bethesda, which, by the way, that was excavated, I think, if my memory serves me correctly, like 1899. It's like over 100 years ago. It was excavated, and this pool is there, but he finds a man. Jesus is there with many ill people, lame, blind people at this pool. They all want a blessing. They all want healing, and, and rumor has it that an angel comes and stirs the waters if you have an NASB Bible, that verse is in brackets. You see it? Some of the oldest manuscripts don't have this verse. 
however, even as far as the second century, um, Clement of Alexandria, I believe, or was it Tertullian, one of them, they did mention this. So there's just, we're not sure, but it's irrelevant, frankly. But that was the view. So they're there waiting for a healing. The man's there. He's ill. He was there for 38 years, probably since birth. And Jesus comes to him. Jesus knows the length of his plight, and he comes to him, and he says, do you wish to get well? Verse 6. Not all about you, but that's a strange question. But it's a great question. Do you wish to get well? Instead of believing the word of Jesus like the nobleman in the previous story, the man complains. He says that he can't get into the pool at the right time because someone else always gets in there before him. 38 years, he's trying to get into this pool. He can't do it. That's a long time. And the reason is because the man's trusting the wrong thing. See, Jesus commands him to pick up his pallet, and the New American Standard translates it pallet. It's a mat. It would have been made out of straw, and you would have rolled it up and carried it with you. It would have been easy to transport. You needed it to be that way. He says, get up, walk, rise, whatever you want to say. He tells the man to stand up, pick it up, walk away. But then John tells us in verse 9 something scary. It's the Sabbath day. John's great at this. He tells us all these little snippets to build this story to tell us what's happening. Obviously, Jesus in Jerusalem, they're not jiving. There's not enough room for the two of them on this planet, so something's going to give. And Jesus is going to die, but he's going to rise. And then 40 years later, Jerusalem is going to perish. Typical of power religionists, the religious leaders complain about the carrying of his pallet mat because it's the Sabbath. Okay, here's a man that they would have known. 38 years, you get to know somebody by the pool. They would have known that. Jesus says, get up, carry your pallet, leave. The guy leaves. The Pharisees are frustrated. They're not blown away by the miracle. They're frustrated the man's carrying his pallet, his mat. (laughs) In response, he tells the leaders that the that the man who healed him commanded him to pick up his pallet and walk, right? Could this be blame shifting? (laughs) Maybe, after all, the miracle worker told me to pick it up. So I did. And they want to know who the man is. Who is this man who healed you? But he doesn't know. Jesus slips away in the crowd. But afterwards, we don't see this in the text often. Afterwards, Jesus finds the man in the temple. I take it to mean Jesus goes to look for him. That, That doesn't happen in the other stories. He goes to look for him. It's like he, and he has something else to say in verse 14. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The the man leaves after this conversation with Jesus. He goes and he tells the religious leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. I'm wondering if that was the sin. I don't know. And this action of telling them leads to the leaders becoming extremely angry with Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus speaks to the leaders because they're there. There's this interaction. And he says, this cryptic thing, almost like a ridiculous thing to say. You can see it in your Bible. Verse 17. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. This made them even more angry. Because not only is he promoting Sabbath breaking, he's calling God his father, which in their book is blasphemy. And blasphemy is when you make yourself equal with God. And guess what? That's a capital offense. In fact, if 
you remember the trial at nighttime, that comes up later. This man said he's, he's like God, that he is God, that he's co-equal with God. Now, a few things to consider about this incident. The crippled man is a microcosm, a picture of Israel. Israel is the crippled man, the lame man there at the pool. Both of them, both Israel and the man, are lame. They're sick. They're burdened. And this has been going on for quite a long time. Both of them, both the man and Israel, have the source of healing close to them. And yet, mere proximity isn't enough. Think about this. Jesus is standing in the midst of them, the great Savior of the world. The man, the the crippled man is standing there by the pool, by Jesus. See, both Israel and this man had basically embraced their poverty-stricken state, preferring idleness to true faith. Instead of exhibiting faith like the nobleman and begging for Christ's healing, the man basically, that's why Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he basically laments his condition with self-pity. Like this man, Israel had become comfortable with their plight. They didn't have healing. They didn't have any of that because the temple, we know, was corrupt. They didn't have faith in God. They rejected Christ and chose faith in man. They had substituted themselves as sovereign. And just how bad had things become? How bad was it? Well, Israel wouldn't be persuaded by miracles. The the leaders could care less. And guess what? they would not be persuaded by Christ's resurrection either. Why do we think that they'll believe when they're completely and utterly opposed to God? When you're talking to someone, demanding a sign, demanding, show me Jesus, or I'll, and I will never believe. Christ is risen. And there were people, there were religious leaders who still wouldn't believe. Think of the rich man and Lazarus parable. You can read that later. So this man's was, his condition was bad, no doubt, but his condition had led, to, led him to a place of comfortableness and idleness. Any of you ever been sick so long, maybe like a, you broke your foot or something, there are times when you sort of embrace this self-pity. You, you sort of embrace, you get trapped in this world of, of self-pity. You, you, uh, I remember I tore my ACL in high school, and an MCL and meniscus. It was bad. And I was laid up for a long time. And after a while, you start to feel pretty bad about yourself. You sort of embrace that. Like, and then you whine. For me, it was, oh, my baseball career is over. My Division three college <laughs> baseball career is over. Oh, no, I'll never play for the Detroit Tigers. And you sort of em- you embrace it. It's like your identity now. You, you throw your identity off. For- you throw Christ off, and you, you throw on this... New identity. This man was in that position, no doubt. He had embraced it. He had embraced what it is. 38 years of sickness. Woe is me. I can do nothing. I can do nothing. And yet, he says there's no other path until Jesus heals him. And that's partly why Jesus told him not to sin, I think. It's speculation. The man didn't have a robust faith in Christ. To be fair, we don't know exactly what the sin is that Jesus says, don't go sin anymore. We don't know what that was. But clearly there was a temptation for the man to not believe on Christ, but instead be happy and content with the miracle. 
The sin Jesus warned against may have been the sin of hopelessness and helplessness in the face of healing, the sin of not trusting Jesus' word, but instead trusting in Jesus' miracle. Nonetheless, we need to do some heavy lifting because there's a lot in this passage. We have just a few more minutes of time left. The central problem comes to the surface, and it's this. It was a Sabbath. It was a Sabbath. Oh, no, it was a Sabbath. The reason the religious leaders, keep this in mind, the, religi- the reason the religious leaders hated Jesus so much is because of the goodness of Jesus. Okay? You can start to dep- despise and envy someone because they're serving you, they're following Jesus, they're, they're doing this, that, and the other. You can, that's a thing. But here are the religious leaders who have a holy, white-hot flame passion and hatred against the Lord of glory. And why? Because he's a good man. Because he's a holy man. He's a pure man. He's a man without guile. He's a righteous man. And they wanted none of that. And their hatred had stemmed from the fact that they wanted a God that they could manage. And Jesus, well, Jesus was unmanageable. (laughs) Jesus was unmanageable, quite unmanageable, I might say. And for men who hate God, this was this inexorable problem that needed to be dealt with. If you can't manage someone, that's why people have control issues toward other people. We want to manage other people. And so when we start to do that, we find them unmanageable and they don't meet our expectations and then we start to grow bitterness and there's a whole train of things that follow. This was the religious leaders. Either God was going to bend and succumb to their wishes or they are going to war against him and we know the route they chose. They crucified him. Now the issue of Sabbath is at the forefront of the passage because the issue of Sabbath is directly tied to the issue of sovereignty. That's why I put them together in the title of this message. The Sabbath healing was meant to prove the righteousness of the Sabbath, to point to its true vision as a gift for man to enjoy. Let's get that straight. Because we have Jesus' view of the Sabbath, healing the man. We have the religious leader's view of the Sabbath, the man walking with his mat. Those are worlds apart. Those are worlds apart. See, Sabbath is meant to be a rest in God's law word. It's a, it's a rest. We're not under condemnation. We're in Christ, Romans 8.1. We're, no, we're not condemned. It's meant to be this rest in God's word, not this self-imposed regiment of, of anxious rule-keeping and, and anxious um, dot-your-eyes-cross-your-t's-keeping. Because the Sabbath, now when I mean Sabbath, I want you to know what I mean. I'm referring to one day in seven, this pattern. Because the Sabbath was made for man, it's a gift for man to enjoy, not a rule to be enslaved by. Please keep that in mind. Listen, Rushton, he said this. It's just a quick quote. He said, The contrast between do-nothing Sabbath and a Sabbath surrounded to, surrendered rather to God's healing and working is like the difference between night and day. Those are the Sabbaths. Collision of sovereignty, collision of Sabbath, Jesus heals, provides mercy. The Pharisees can't stand it that the guy, I mean, that's the thing they chose to get mad about. The guy was walking around with his mat. These are worlds apart. So Sabbath is not an issue between the things we're allowed to do and the things we're not allowed to do. 
That's where the discussions always end, ends up. Well, what are we allowed to do? Because we're supposed to rest. And ladies, some of you made food for tonight. Did you rest? Probably not. I mean, maybe. If you just made oatmeal, that's easy. But I usually don't do that. But it's not, you wouldn't necessarily call that rest. And I think we need to do more work theologically on the word rest to understand it. We're going to touch on that later. Because usually we think of rest as don't do anything. Sleep all day. <laughs> I, don't think that's, I don't think that's necessarily rest. A God-glorifying nap, amen. You might need that from time to time. But it's not an issue between what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do. It's a difference between doing the works of mercy and healing that God demands and not doing them. Does that make sense? It's not an argument between what am I allowed to do, what am I not allowed to do. That's not the argument. The argument is, are we going to do the works that God requires? Which is why sometimes you'll see abolitionists out in front of churches on a Sunday, <gasps> the Sabbath day. Like, is that not the work of God seeking justice and pursuing it? And so it's not, we have to get past this idea of, I may have worked a little bit today, because frankly, I work a lot on Sundays. So, I mean, it is what it is. Um, but what's work? And how do you balance that? And, and are you setting a Sabbath pattern? I, that's not the issue. And, and I think this is where sovereignty comes in. When man des- decides to obfuscate God's law and repackage it in terms of all of man's faulty presuppositions, he is basically declaring himself to be sovereign. When you try to repackage it in your own fashion, you're, you're the sovereign at that point. And this aspiration and assent to deity is the, basically the attempted establishment of a false sovereignty, a false Sabbath. When, when we try to do what the Pharisees did and try to manage Jesus and sort of do our own thing with it, we've lost him. We're not bowing to him. We're asking him to bow to us. And thus the question we have to ask from our passage, who's Lord of the Sabbath? Remember Jesus said, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Get it right. It's a gift to enjoy. Who's Lord over Sabbath, man or Christ? Who has the right to declare the ethical boundaries of the Sabbath, man or Christ? That's the issue at the center of the passage. Now, to be sure, I want to I just lay my cards out on the table for you. Um, I, I'm very much convinced that Sunday is the Sabbath day, that it was a change centered on Christ's resurrection, and I do think the principle of one day in seven applies. But I don't think it's so cut and dry that we should just bicker about it either because it's difficult. There are historic... I recommend um, a little booklet Phil Kaiser wrote on the Sunday Sabbath. Historically, the early church talked a lot about... Basically, it was a shift because Christ was risen. That is the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. But there's also a day of the Lord of, of Christ's vengeance. So we have to be careful, exegetically speaking... But I do, see, I do see that as a pattern, and I, and I believe that we are called to the task of dominion six days a week, and on the seventh we are to rest and we are to celebrate and enjoy that dominion. Now, as, as the assembly of God, that's what we are, we are a church, we are an ecclesia, we are an assembly. As the assembly of God, we gather together in service of God, and we, in our gathering, Christ serves us. Christ does serve us. He serves us as pictured in his meal together, in our time of fellowship, 
and, and singing together, Christ is, is serving us. So when we draw to near, near to him, we do find nourishment in him. We ought to be encouraged. And, and God gives to us, and we give to God, and we do it all together. And, and it's our custom here to enjoy um, fellowship with one another afterwards over food and, as it were, football, as the night tonight um, shows. And I think that's good, and it's all fine. It's enjoyable, I might add. I, I like that. I, I hope you do, too. Um, food, fellowship, all that. It's, it's a wonderful thing. But before, long before we discuss days and what we should not shouldn't do, I think it's important for us to remember the principle of God's sovereignty and God's rest in the gift of Sabbath. I believe it was uh, Francis Nigel Lee. He argued that God in his rest on the seventh day, we're going to come to this in a minute, but he, he rests in man, which is something I've never comp- contemplated. And the argument is this. God gave the world to man to dominionize. So he's, he's resting in our work. He's trusting that we carry it out. And we failed. We fumbled it. And it got messy. But Jesus is the next Adam, right? And he, he continues. So when Adam sinned, the, the, the world was plunged into sin and death. But the curse wasn't work. Remember, the curse is not that you have to work. The curse is the difficulty of our work. So this means we have to rest. We must cease from labor. We must, at some point, bring it to a close, stop. We, we, we're not mechanical robots. We are humans who um, have energy and expend energy. And we have to be able to rest. And the only way to rest, to truly rest, is to partake of Christ, who is our Sabbath rest. So when we come to faith in Christ, we partake of this rest by seizing from sin and instead pursuing holiness. That's part of what it means for you to apply the Sabbath. And this healing of the crippled man is a pointer to this reality. In Christ, we are healed from our dead spiritual state, and then we go and we are told to sin no more. That's the calling of holiness on our lives. We are told to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness. And why do we pursue holiness? Because Jesus said you are holy. You pursue what you already have. It's the difference between you not having the gift in your hand and having to run and go get it. He's not telling you to go get the gift over there. You have the gift in your hand. Enjoy it. That's the difference. So we are told to labor and to work. And we're also told in 1 Corinthians 15 that our labor is not in vain. And we're told to rest from that work, to take a break from it, to enjoy a relaxation, a seizing from that Dominion calling, and I believe one in seven pattern signifies the Christ, the rest that we have in Christ. You see, Sabbath is meant to be this bulwark against paganism. When when men rest in Christ, he stops pursuing ungodliness. When we realize the weight of what we have in Christ, we want nothing else, nothing else than Him. This is why Sabbath is a bulwark against the humanistic nonsense we see all around of us. It shows us another way. It shows us another way to be human. And notice at the end of the passage, in verse 17, my father is working until now and I myself am working. What in the world is he talking about? When God created the world in six days, he rested on the seventh. But that rest wasn't a weariness, right? He's not tired. 
No, God rested because that was a pattern for man. Man was always supposed to start his week with rest and then get to work. But Adam, who incidentally, instead of resting on day one, chose to rebel on day one, he ended up starting his dominion calling with sin and oppression. He had to work and then rest. That's the pattern of six days, rest one, and it was undone in Christ because Christ was raised on the first day, the eighth day, the first day of the dominion week. We rest in him and then we take our calling. So we start our dominion by resting in him and we get to work by still resting with, in him. None of you leave and go to work this week and you stop trusting Christ. Or you shouldn't. You shouldn't. We're, we're not to escape our calling to work. We're to appropriate our work in Christ first. We, we celebrate the covenant Lord on Sunday and it's meant to be the thing that fuels us and encourages us and spurs us on as we plot and strategize to conquer Northern Virginia. To take the land. So what about the working? Well, in short, Jesus is King Adam II. He has come to undo the work of the problem of Adam I. And this undoing is a change of Sabbath. A change of a view of the Sabbath would require an assertion of God's sovereignty. All that's tied together. And the work of God that Jesus is doing alongside his Father, that's his claim to deity, is the giving of life. My Father is working and so am I working. And what is the work Jesus is doing? Telling a man to get up and walk. That is work. What is work? It's healing. It's, it's grace dispensing. It's this beautiful picture of the gospel applied. Giving life is not work for God because God creates and he sustains all life. <laughs> That's, it's not exhausting work for him, not at all. And God's not prone to exhaustion. He neither sleeps nor slumbers, the Bible tells us. But this alone will not keep man's desire to control God at bay. And this is the frustration with the religious leaders. Again, Christ is unmanageable. He's not falling in line. He's not sticking to conventions and social etiquette. Jesus is not interested in their attempts at sovereignty, and neither should we be. And today we serve the risen Christ. And today we too must labor. Like the religious leaders, we may have to react to people the way Jesus reacted to people. When we announce the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are announcing a new social order. There's a new king in town. This new king has a standard. And listen, not everybody's going to be happy about it. Governor Northam, it's not, it's not righteous to dress up in a KKK blackface photo. It's racist. And it's not righteous to promote infanticide. We have a problem. And men who hate God, they are not quick to disavow their sovereignty. They're not. They're not quick to disavow their own claim on, on authority and sovereignty. But disavow they must. And our job is to see to it that people know that Jesus is working. They need to know that Jesus is working. And they need to know that we are working. They need to know it. Which means the gospel of the kingdom we preach must be the gospel of the kingdom that we are laboring to produce in the world around us. There is one sovereign Lord of the Sabbath, and it is Jesus Christ. So we rest in him and we labor with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray that you would awaken your church. And this includes us. We ask and pray that, that each Sabbath, this pattern that you have set before us, we ask and pray that 
we would be reminded of the Dominion Covenant, the task of building a social order founded on the scriptures. But we would ask first that, that in this reminder, we would not lose sight of your glory, your supremacy. We ask, Spirit, that you would fill us so that we could then pour into others. We know, Father, that we live in a nation of high-handed rebellion, and we ask that your patience with us would not be squandered, and that many would come to faith through our witness and our work. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.